We're going to read a little bit further than most people do on Palm Sunday to get a little bit more understanding from this text. Uh, we're going to read verses 28 through the end of the chapter, 48. And then we're going to go back to an earlier part of the chapter. So we're going to be covering a large amount of scripture. I think it really helps us to understand what is going on in this story. A lot, we all know what happens after the story, obviously, all the Easter events, but we need some context to understand what is happening in this story. So Luke nineteen twenty-eight. After Jesus had said this, he just kind of shared some, shared some things. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the ground goes down, where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of our translations say Hosanna in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a very poignant scene. Uh, Jesus, you ever thought about this idea of Jesus crying going into Jerusalem? Like, this was a, t- this was a tough thing for him to face. Not his own death, but the thought uh, at this moment is of Jerusalem itself. Uh, Jesus knew that this this city that he loved so much, this people that God had always uh, striven with and uh, and uh, and been faithful to, that they had rejected Jesus, who was the one that God sent, and it was very heartbreaking to him to think about that. And uh, and Jesus knew because Jesus knows everything that in seventy A.D., just seventy years after this, that Jerusalem was going to be sacked by the Romans. The temple was going to be defiled and torn down. So the, the, the historians who write about this say no stone was left on another stone. It was completely wiped out. One point something million people killed. Um, and Jesus is just grieving what he knows is coming down the corridor of history. And Jesus is grieving the fact that the person the Bible testified to himself, who was the one that could bring peace, was rejected 
If only you knew this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Then, verse 45, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Kind of an interesting passage in, in context. It takes some of the cartoony feeling of the ride into Jerusalem out of the picture and gives you more of a sober view of what's going on here. And the question when you look at this is, why did Jesus come? What was his mission? What was his purpose? It's such a, a resolute way that Jesus sets about his purpose. He's very, if you will, purposeful with his purpose. At this part of the story, it appears that everything is going exactly according to God's plan. And I think, you know, the biggest clue for me is in uh, Luke 19.30. Jesus says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. How would he know that? <laughs> like, that's really pretty specific. Not just any cult, a cult that had never been ridden before. And uh, I, I guess it was okay with those people when they saw these people walking away with their cult. Uh, they're like, what are you doing with my, with my cult? And they're like, the Lord needs it. And for some reason, it was okay with those people. <laughs> I probably would have chased the disciples down a little bit. But it seems like this story is, is very purposeful. There's nothing happening by accident here. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what his mission was. And he was steadfastly going to fulfill that mission. And we just see so many clues in the story. It's interesting to think about that, that he was very purposeful, that he was very specific, and everything was going so exactly according to his plan at this point, but it doesn't answer exactly what his purpose was. What was he so resolutely, unswervingly going towards? And for most of us, we know that Jesus' mission, Jesus' purpose, what Jesus was after, Jesus came to save us. That was Jesus' purpose. That's why he was going into Jerusalem. Uh, He was going to save us. He was going to provide salvation. And sometimes we get a a shallow understanding of what it means to be be saved, um, or or a surfacey one. I want to talk talk about salvation for a moment. This is actually a question that came up two summers ago when we did a, a series called You Asked For It. People said, what does it mean to be saved? And, uh, Part of what it means uh, to be saved is we need to be saved. <laughs> we, uh, in the garden where Adam and Eve were living uh, before sin entered the world, there was no need for salvation. Everything was just fine. Everything was just fine. There was no sin. There was no uh, disharmony in, in human beings' relationship with God. There was no disharmony between human beings. The lion laid with the lamb. It was at perfect peace in the garden. Uh, there's no need for salvation. But since uh, sin entered the world, since Adam and Eve chose to sin and disobey God, you know, a curse fell upon creation. And this wall of separation came up between people and God. Uh, if, if you look at the text in, in Genesis, and this is something I've talked about quite a bit, uh, where people felt no shame about being naked in the garden, uh, they, they didn't feel a need to hide from God. As soon as they sinned, they started hiding from God. 
And when God put, banished them from the garden and said, you must go out into, into that, the, the land out there now as a, as a punishment for your sin, God fashioned for them a garment out of animal skin and covered them so they would not feel shame. And that covering was meant to prefigure Christ. It was a, a picture of what Jesus would do as he was coming to save us. That Jesus was going to, this was a provisional covering for people's sin and shame. But Jesus was coming to provide an ultimate covering for our sin in his blood. And salvation, being saved, um, it's something that we, that we receive, certainly, as a gift through Jesus, through faith in Christ. But it's also something that's referring to a future event. There is a judgment seat that everyone will stand before. And they will stand before God and give an account for the things they've done in their body, both good and bad, it says in 2 Corinthians 5. We'll give an account to God for everything we've done in the body, both good and bad. And salvation means that when we go before God and we give an account of what we did in the body, that we say, yeah, I'm aware that I've done some bad things, but Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my covering. And at that moment, you are saved from judgment when you stand before God. So it's, it's a, salvation is kind of a present reality that we take on to ourselves through believing that Jesus' blood covers us. And it's also something that, that's provisional for the future. When we stand before God, we will have no shame. We will claim the cross of Christ. We will claim the blood shed for us. And God will look at us, look upon Jesus' covering of his blood, and pardon us of our sins. It's awesome. It's totally awesome. And God provided that covering because he loves us. He loves us, and he wants us to be in harmony with him. So that's kind of what salvation is about. Uh, Jesus came to save. I want to backtrack to Luke 19.1. So this is the beginning of today's chapter. And this is that story of Zacchaeus I shared with the kids. I think this is an excellent illustration of what Jesus came to do. This is exactly the kind of stuff Jesus was about. Jesus entered into Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be with the guest of a sinner. Clearly they didn't consider themselves to be sinners. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give all of my possessions, I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. So he's including this outcast into the family of God. That's a picture of the love of God. And then Jesus says something so profound. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. Jesus came to save us because we are the lost. Jesus came to provide a covering uh, for our sin. That was his purpose. The second little piece of salvation, the second aspect of it, as a sub-point of this one is, 
Jesus' purpose in dying was to restore to us our purpose for living. I want you to remember this. Salvation is something that we get now that also has future implications. This is something that we get now when we come to Christ. Our purpose for living is restored through Jesus' purpose of dying. What do I mean by that? In the Garden of Eden, going back to that narrative, uh, people were living exactly as God designed them to live. Theologians say phrases like, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever as human beings. And in the garden, before sin entered the world, people perfectly enjoyed God and glorified him. There was nothing to, to be an impediment to that. And I want you to think about this. They worked in the garden. We think of work as being a ter- this thing we have to do to make, make ends meet. But they worked in the pre-fall world, and it was good. They enjoyed working. They, they would work the fields and... Crops would spring up. The animals were cooperative and not violent. Uh, Our relationship to work was unmarred by sin. One of our purposes for living is to glorify God by working with our hands and do that for his glory. And that was perfect back then. There was also, and and if you're married, or you have been married, or or if you uh, perhaps have had friends that you've had difficulties with, I want you to think about what a dream it was, the relationship between Adam and Eve. There was no sin in the world. There was perfect understanding between them. There was no brokenness. There was no brokenness between them. Uh, they did not, there was no selfishness. There was not a placing of one person's needs above the other person's. There was a perfect harmony of a relationship between those two. If you think about it, that's kind of like the family piece of it. The, the family was not shredded by, by sin. It was just a perfect situation. They were glorifying God and enjoying him in that context. And, uh, and no one thought to themselves, oh, he's so stupid. Why is he doing that? Or I can't believe she didn't do this. There's none of that garbage in their marriage, you know? It was, um, it was, a, it was, it was a marriage that was perfect because it was in perfect relationship with God before sin was in the world. And perhaps the most, the crowning achievement of the garden, the pre-fall world, uh, that really reflects the purpose of living, to glorify God and enjoy him, was that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. They just walked with God. I imagine since Jesus was was with God in the beginning, all the world was created through Christ. I imagine, uh, I fill in the blanks with my imagination of of Jesus himself walking with Adam and Eve in in the garden. You know, pretty awesome, you know. There was nothing coming between human beings and God before sin entered the world. Well, just as much as we need salvation... Uh, from from judgment for our sins and all that, which Jesus has provided. A portion of uh, Jesus' purpose in dying was to restore our purpose for living. It says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God's goal for our present existence, our present life, is to make a new humanity out of us. New men new women who walk in the way that Adam and Eve walked. And we do it through looking to the salvation that's provided through Jesus' blood, and then we are given the Holy Spirit. And God begins to transform our inner being to the deepest level so that we begin to be this new humanity. We begin living the way that God dreamed for us to live. We begin functioning differently in our marriages. We begin functioning differently in our workspaces. We begin functioning differently uh, and in harmony in our relationship with God.
we walk with him in the cool of the day and we feel no shame. Uh, we, we put on Christ and we consider the needs of another person above our own. We look at other people in humility and consider them better than ourselves. We take off that old humanity, which is, being, which is marred by sin, and we put on the, humanity of the, the, the new humanity that God is creating. Jesus doesn't want us just to be saved in the future. He wants that salvation to produce a new creation in the present where we can walk like Adam and Eve did. And uh, through Jesus, uh, death on the cross, through his, through his very purposeful march into Jerusalem, um, his purpose in dying was to restore our original purpose for living, that we might be a people who in an ever-increasing way glorify God and enjoy him. Uh, in our lives, in everything that we do, in our relationship with everything is set right. That's a pretty amazing thing that Jesus has died to give us. The third reason that Jesus came, and this might seem a little bit out of order to you, but Jesus came to judge. Jesus came, if we see in the end of this uh, passage, Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and he, through many tears, you understand this is not something that he enjoys, um, he, he says, this, this city is going to be destroyed because they re- flatly reject me. They flatly reject me. And he goes into the temple, and he says, this place is supposed to be a place of prayer, but you've made it a, dead, a den of robbers, brigands, and um, revolutionaries. It's not functioning in, in, in the way it was supposed to. And Jesus brought judgment on Jerusalem, and Jesus brought judgment on the temple. And notice, Jesus didn't bring judgment on Zacchaeus. Why? Because Zacchaeus, what? What did he do? He actually re- he received uh, the gift of salvation through Jesus, and he cha- he put took off the old humanity and put on the new humanity, and he began to to do things in a totally different way by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I think. Um, salvation came to Zacchaeus, but all these other people, these re- these religious types who believe that they don't need Jesus in order to be saved, who don't think that the blood of Jesus is necessary, that it can be um, brought about by human effort, that it can be brought about by correct religious practices or keeping dietary laws or keeping the Sabbath. Those people who rejected Jesus flatly, um, thinking their righteousness was enough, on those people Jesus pronounced judgment. He said, through tears, Jesus said, how I have longed, it says in another gospel, this is, this is a maternal figure, uh, a figure of speech. How I have longed, Jesus says, to gather you underneath my wings. But you were unwilling. Uh, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you know, some of you know, that uh, there's that phenomenon where the mother hen takes the chicks underneath her wings in a fire. And they'll find a burned up mother hen and the chicks are alive underneath her. That's a picture of salvation, being covered with the blood of Jesus, being saved by Jesus. And Jesus, when he weeps and pronounces judgment over Jerusalem, when he goes into the temple, pronounces judgment there in our passage today, um, he's saying, how I longed to save you, to gather you up underneath my blood, under my sacrifice, to give you the new humanity, to give you, to restore your purpose for living. But you were unwilling. What more can I do for you? There's nothing Jesus can do for the person that flatly rejects them, rejects him. There's just nothing that can be done. I mean, it's not that, (laughs) 
it's not that anyone is being kept from Jesus. Jesus, God is offering everything to a, to, to, to everyone uh, through Jesus. But when they flatly reject Jesus consistently, I don't need him, I'm good. What, what more can God do at that point? Honestly, uh, God's done everything that he possibly can to save. Uh, but the third reason he came was to pronounce judgment on those religious types of people who believe they don't need Jesus in order to be saved, but think their righteousness is enough to cover them. I don't know about you, but I, that'd be pretty shaky territory in front of, in front of God someday <laughs> to say, you know, yes, Lord, I know I've done some bad things, but the good things that I've done, you know, they outweigh the bad. I mean, show me, the, show, me the, show me the data, God. Show me the spreadsheet, and I'll show you how my righteousness surpasses on the scale of justice the things that I've done uh, against you. I would not want to be that person because it's just not going to work. It doesn't work that way. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through looking to Jesus, God's second self, who came as a man who purposefully marched into Jerusalem um, so that he could give his life and shed his blood so that when God looks at a person that's covered in the blood of Jesus, metaphorically speaking, allegorically speaking, it's an image we're using, when God sees someone who trusts in Jesus' sacrifice, he passes over, his judgment passes over that person, and that person is saved. And not only does God do that, but because God's of God's loving nature, God's real desire, what he's really getting at is the new humanity. He wants people to be transformed like Zacchaeus was transformed. He wants people to receive that gift of grace and then say, I'm just going to I'm just going to fix, fix stuff because God has so loved me and so affected my life and given me his Holy Spirit. I'm just going to change everything about how I'm living. I'm going to get back to the way I'm supposed to be living in justice, in fairness, in, uh, in, uh, in returning money that was stolen. I mean, look at what Zacchaeus, how Zacchaeus despond, responded to God's invitation of grace. And then uh, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, salvation has come to this guy because he gets it. He gets it. He's throwing off the old, putting on the new. So that's God's dream. Jesus came to save us. That was his purpose. That's why he was going into Jerusalem, uh, to save people that can't save themselves. And Jesus' purpose in dying was to restore our purpose for living, that we would go back to the way it was before sin entered the world in relationship to our um, families, our friends, uh, in our relationship with our work, the work that we do, in our relationship with God, fundamentally. That we go back to good. We'd reset. And that the Holy Spirit would transform us in our inner man, in our inner woman. That we might be the new creation that God is calling forth. Um, and then finally, Jesus came to bring judgment on those who flatly refuse any of that stuff that he's offering. At that point, there's not anything left that God can do for a person. For the person who doesn't believe they need Jesus. For the person that believes their righteousness is, is, uh, is enough to save them. There's nothing that can be done for that person. Because nothing will ever be enough except for the blood of Jesus. And God, if, God, if there's another way that God could save people, he would do it. It, w- it wasn't easy to, uh, to come to earth as, as a human to suffer as Jesus did, 
Uh, you, you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to look at this next week, he sat in that garden just sweating blood, going through the stages of shock because of how the thought of what the mission that was before him, the purpose that he was so resolutely moving towards, he, he was, he, God suffered and God died for our sins. Uh, God didn't, God didn't have all this wrath and decide, I'm going to take it out on Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus took all of that and put it on himself for us. And how can we flatly refuse a love like that? How can we refuse it? How can we refuse it, Jesus? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to sing a, a song called Amazing Grace, which many of you know. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not have not trusted him for your salvation, there is only one covering for sin that's found in Jesus this morning. Uh, if you are someone who does know salvation, but you sort of uh, missed the part about the new humanity and walking with the Holy Spirit and having your life be restored through the salvation that Jesus brings, it's time to consider what is God calling you to in the, in the new humanity he's trying to create? Um, how is he trying to transform you and bring you back into line with his original purpose to glorify him and enjoy him forever in your work, your relationships with him and with others? And then, um, you know, finally, apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. Apart from Jesus' sacrifice, there is nothing left but judgment. So I strongly suggest the first two. <laughs> there were other options I would tell you honestly, but I think that God has provided this way through Jesus for us to come to the Father, and he's the only way, and he did it because he loves us. And none of us, like Z- all of us should, should identify with Zacchaeus to some extent. None of us have our junk together at all. We all just need Jesus. That's what the church is, a collection of imperfect people who need Jesus, who seek him together and receive his grace together and grow together and become the new humanity together. One of my very favorite stories about God uh, is when Jacob, who's been a deceiver his whole life, lied to people in the Old Testament and deceived people. And an angel of the Lord, which was the Lord himself, wrestled with Jacob uh, all night. And of course the Lord could have beat him. <laughs> he could have beat him right away. But he... He took the time to wrestle with the human soul and the stiff-neckedness, the, um, the, the stubbornness, and the most stubborn of human beings just to wrestle with him until finally um, the morning came and he, t- he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and Jacob surrendered, you know. The, my, the best thing about God is his patience and how he wrestles with us and gives us, uh, because of his great love for us and his great faithfulness, he, he gives us so much opportunity and I just encourage you this morning, if God is knocking on your heart as far as salvation is concerned, uh, trusting in Jesus' sacrifice and not anything more, but just, just Christ, claiming Christ, being covered in that blood, um, surrender. Surrender to God. Just surrender to him. Um, and if you are just struggling in general with that stubborn, stiff-necked kind of attitude with, with, with the new humanity and what God's trying to do in you, surrender to the Holy Spirit. It's not, like we said last week, we can't change ourselves. We can't change our behaviors. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need to surrender to God and just say, God, I give up. Have your way with me. I give up. I give up. I can't win this fight. (laughs) And I know that you love me, and you're doing what's best for me. So this morning, if you need prayer, feel free to receive prayer. I'm happy to pray. There's some elders here and cell leaders who would be happy to pray. But for the rest of you, You were dispersed. Your kids have five more minutes in class, so don't get them quite yet. Go and be the church.